Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. For those of you who listen to this podcast regularly, you know that I had promised a three-week series leading up to Thanksgiving. Being as sentimental about Thanksgiving as I am and believing it to be a a holiday that reminds us of some important features of our American history, uh, I would plan to do a three-week series. However, I'm going to interrupt that series today. I did part one last week. Today, I want to talk about what's happened here recently with ISIS. And next week, I will do part two of that series. I'll only do two. And I will tell the Thanksgiving story, which I think is immensely relevant given what I'm discussing today. So forgive this intrusion in that series. I hope you were enjoying it. But today, I want to talk about the fact that we have now begun what I believe can best be described as World War III with ISIS and the radical edge of Islam. We, on this past weekend, actually on Friday the 13th of November 2015, we all witnessed as a number of events, coordinated events, were unleashed in Paris, and the death toll now has inched up close to 150 people. The the shock is not so much the death toll, though, of course, the death of any person should be of concern to us. Uh, It was the coordination of it. It was the fact that you had members of ISIS firing Kalashnikov machine guns uh, into seas of diners and uh, those at clubs dancing, people who were unarmed, people who were innocent. And you had a number of different groups of ISIS members uh, unleashing violence within Paris. This comes on the heels of a number of other things that we're all very aware of. We can go back years, but if we just go back to October 31st, we have the downing of a Russian airliner over Egypt with 244 killed. We've had many stabbings of late in Israel. There have been stabbings on the street, caught on many security cameras. Uh, We've had Canadian guards uh, murdered by ISIS members. We all know these horrible stories. And I'm not attempting to be sensationalist. I'm not attempting to uh, stir up animosities when I say that I believe that we have indeed now stepped into a condition where we have to say that we are we have entered into World War Three. Now, now, why do I say that? Well, let me first say that I'm not alone in saying that. The Pope said just within the last few days, he said we can now speak quote of a third world war. One fought piecemeal with crimes, massacres, and destruction. So the Pope this past weekend said that we had stepped into World War III. Well, some of you might ask, well, why are you, Stephen, a Protestant, quoting that? Well, because I believe that the Pope has made an important statement. I believe that he is a smart man, a good assessor of history. He's also a man who is uh, has lived most of his life outside of Europe and is now living in Europe. And so I think his analysis is important, both because he's a religious figure and because I think he comes as an outsider to the European context. It just so happened that as the shootings in ISIS were occurring, I was getting on an airplane to go to London just for the weekend. I know for many people that sounds odd, but that's what I do sometimes. And so I was in England uh, during the early phase of the revelations regarding this crisis in Paris. 
And I have a love for Europe. I grew up in Europe. I was a, spent maybe eight years of my youth in Germany and have a deep love for Europe. And I have studied the histories of the wars there, of course. And I, too, believe, along with the Pope, that we are now in a condition we can best describe as World War III. Some of you will hesitate at that thought. Some of you will not really relate to it, particularly Americans. And let me explain a little bit of why, uh, and then I'll make some practical recommendations and analyses. Um, we, we Americans tend to think largely of World War II when we think of the World Wars. We think, of course, of the uh, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which launched us suddenly and violently into World War II. Um, we also are aware of the dr- drama of Hitler invading Poland and the Nazis rising and taking over territory in Germany and other places, of course, France, the uh, Alsace-Lorraine, etc. Uh, we are we feel kinship with uh, the British prime ministers. Some will feel disgust at Prime Minister Chamberlain, who thought he had negotiated quote peace in our time, but hadn't. We rejoice when Winston Churchill came to office, etc., etc. But the dawn of that war seems to us in memory to have happened suddenly. It, it it largely did. It was relatively sudden, especially in the American experience, but. World War One, our first world war, really is more of a model for what is happening now. And I want to describe that briefly so that we keep it in our minds. Obviously, what's happening now in the world is not one single large event that then launches any nation into a world war orientation. For example, there is no Pearl Harbor per se. 9-11 did not amount to that. We're not experiencing that now. But that's the model of World War II. World War I came about far more subtly, uh, far more, we might say, indirectly. Uh, most of us will remember that on June 28, 1914, I always remember that because June 28 is my birthday, uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated uh, in Sarajevo, uh, which we know now as Bosnia and knew then as Bosnia. Um, that is really the small, rather small event that began World War I. Uh, soon the Austro-Hungarians declared war on Serbia, the Russians backed Serbia, Germany invaded neutral Belgium and Luxembourg, and it just took off from there. Uh, nations got in progressively, some wouldn't join for years, um, and, and almost no one at the time would have thought that this relatively small incident Uh, of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand would have led to the massive results that World War I produced. World War I ended empires. World War I restructured the Middle East. World War I realigned the European powers. It's, it's, It's hard to express uh, all of what World War I uh, produced. Uh, it certainly produced the Soviet era. I could go on and on and on. But it happened, for the most part, progressively. And the reason it could happen that way is because there had been decades of instability and terrorism and small wars and economic upheaval and uh, arms races, etc., to give you some sense of how progressively World War I happened for many of the people involved, uh, the United States did not become uh, involved in World War I until 1917. Remember that I said that the spark of World War I was, occurred in June 28, 1914. 
14, almost three years. Uh, almost three years it took for the United States to get involved. And in fact, the United States had prided itself on not getting involved. In May of 1915 was the famous sinking by German U-boats of the Lusitania, uh, which was something we uh, very much opposed. President Wilson refused to get involved in any conflict at the time. In fact, he said, quote, Americans are too proud to fight. I mean, he prided himself on it. When he ran for re-election in 1916, uh, the big slogan that carried him back into office was, quote, he kept us out of war. So there was a lot of anti-war feeling. There was a lot of animosity. But then in 1917, two major things happened. First of all, a whole number of American boats were sunk, again, by German U-boats. And most people forget probably from their high school or college history courses that what really drew us into World War I uh, was that the German foreign minister wrote the powers in Mexico and suggested a joint operation in which they invade the United States. Uh, this was stated in a Zimmerman note. That was the name of the German, German foreign minister, Zimmerman. So between the sinking of the, of the many boats, about seven boats in 1917, and the surfacing of this Zimmerman note, a note by the German foreign minister proposing that Mexico, if you can believe it, invade the United States jointly with Germany, um, 1917, the U.S. finally got involved. Notice it was almost three years uh, after the start of the war. And by the way, the war was over by the following November 1918. So we were only at war for 17 months and uh, we didn't lose that many men. I don't mean to diminish the war. It was a horrible war. Uh, some other time I'll do a podcast on World War I and commemorate it since we're at the 100 year anniversary of the events of World War I. But my goodness, the horrors, the terror, uh, the fact that the technology, the military technology had horribly outstripped the, the tactics used at the time. And millions and millions were lost. Nine million people total, seven million combatants, uh, entire generations of European manhood wiped out. It was terrible. But what I wanna, the point I want to make is that we got into that war, certainly the United States and some other powers, progressively. It did not have the sudden dawning that World War II did. It did not have its Pearl Harbors and its, its uh, Nazi troops moving into Poland and Czechoslovakia. It did not have the Blitzkrieg that we experienced in World War II. It was far more progressive. And people, uh, nations even invaded each other that had nothing to do uh, with the war. Why would Mexico want to invade the United States? You see, it became sort of an excuse in World War I for animosities to surface. Well, this is something of what we're dealing with now. And those who are looking for a World War II model uh, may, may miss the fact that we are actually now engaged in a global war uh, because they do not know perhaps the World War I model, which was far more diverse, had far more, uh, far, far larger number of uh, motivations for, for conflict and, uh, and took a, a longer period of time to ramp up. Again, the U.S. not even getting in uh, for two or three years. I believe that we are now in a global war with uh, the radical edge of Islam. Uh, I believe it's a new kind of war. Uh, it's going to be far more high-tech than anything we've ever known before. We would expect that. Our enemy is far more networked. Um, they are, there are uh, far more idea, people who are ideologically sympathetic 
uh, with our enemy who will suddenly surface, though they are completely disconnected from any actual network of our enemy. I'll explain in a moment. Um, and I believe that uh, it's, it is a, a war uh, that is going to be have, have to be fought uh, in a far more guerrilla, uh, high-tech um, and uh, on, a, on a whole different plane. Bear in mind that the actual armed force of ISIS in the Middle East doesn't number more than 40,000 people. Uh, and yet, because it's an ideological cause, because it uses technology, because it reaches around the world, it forces us into what I believe now is a third world war, um, even though its troops are much smaller, you don't have for the most part rolling armies, uh, etc., this is important. I think this is going to be and already is one of the most important issues of our entire generation. And it's important that we know it. It's important that we conduct ourselves accordingly. It's important that we elect leaders who recognize it. Uh, and it's important that we educate and train uh, accordingly. As I say, I grew up in Europe, in Germany. I have great sympathy for Germany. I'm taking my children back over there in a, in a few months and cannot wait uh, to be back in the land of my homeland, especially in Berlin. Um, but I'm very intrigued by the way that largely secular, even neo-pagan Europe is being forced back onto uh, the faith and the values that first made Europe great. I would urge you uh, to, to do a Google search for Angela Merkel, M-E-R-K-E-L, she's the German chancellor, and, and uh, the word Pentecost. Not long ago, the, the, the German chancellor, uh, is a woman I very much admire, Angela Merkel, uh, said that as many people were sort of afraid of this influx of Syrians coming into Europe uh, because of the war there, and, and especially Germany had thrown open their arms and been very welcoming. And some people were saying, man, we shouldn't do this. We're going to be welcoming radical Islam. We're going to, our, our culture is going to be swallowed. And Angela Merkel, who is certainly not known as any great spiritual leader, and uh, she was speaking to a Germany which has an official state church but is not known as a bastion of, of religious fire at all, um, she said, well, you know, we need to not be afraid of outsiders to our faith. We need to reclaim our faith. She said, many of us have lost our knowledge of Scripture. Um, she specifically said most uh, of our youth could would not be able to identify what Pentecost is. These are things we need to know, she said. These are things we need to reclaim. Uh, again, this was the, the, the head of Germany speaking to a nation that is, you know, part of the entire religious slash spiritual drift of uh, Europe to secularism and away from the Christianity that first gave it birth. Uh, you're hearing that same kind of talk from other people, even from uh, the president of France. Couldn't believe some of the things he was saying. Again, France being a very secular nation, Christianity being openly opposed there, and uh, much in, in, the in the minority in, in numerically. Now, I think what's important now, what the shifts that are important is that, first of all, we need to accept the fact that we are at war, that we have entered into, whether historians ever call it this or not, World War III. Number two, uh, we need to recognize that, as I've said, this is forcing Europe uh, onto its earlier values. What distinguishes it? What makes its culture? How can it stand as a people? A third thing we ought to know is that many people have seen the work of radical Islam in Europe as being anti-Semitic, and much of it has been. The earlier shootings in France absolutely 
uh, anti-Semitic, strong anti-Semitism, riots in the streets of Paris against French Jews, who have been, by the way, uh, a great part of the strength of that country. But now people are beginning to realize this is this is this was just an excuse. This was just uh, you know the the radical edge of Islam using the Palestinian situation as an excuse to launch uh, violence against European Jews. Obviously, their target is not just Jews. Their target is anyone who does not stand with them, who does not bow to their religious wishes, who does not, uh, who in any way uh, even just enjoys an evening out for dinner uh, in a city like Paris and does not uh, bend politically to the wishes of ISIS. Finally, I think we all need to keep in mind that whenever we have gone to war as a people, uh, we have had to prepare personally. And I think that that is very much the case now. We need to be prepared for the kind of warfare this is. I'm sitting right now uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, as I record this podcast. I think most of you know, Bev and I split our time between Nashville and D.C. I happen to be in Nashville. Well, Nashville could hardly be further away from any of these incidents geographically. And yet, it's quite possible that in the next hour, some young man, perhaps of Middle Eastern descent, uh, might be watching a video on YouTube or some other uh, location, some other website where radical Islam, where the ISIS ideology is proclaimed. This young man might have a knife, a gun, uh, heck, a butter knife, uh, a car, and step out onto the streets of Nashville and start killing people with that tool uh, simply because he's been radicalized in the last 60 minutes. This is the kind of of war that we are dealing with. Because I work closely with Kurds, and especially speak a lot with the Kurds in Nashville, uh, they have told me many times that ISIS is already in the, um, the mosques of Nashville. ISIS is already there. It's already an influence. I think we can be sure that ISIS is uh, already of influence in many of the mosques around the country. So we need to prepare. What would you do if violence broke out in your city? What, what would you do if there was a lockdown? How would you teach your children? Uh, would you have enough supplies in your home to be able to simply stay home for four or five days while the authorities take care uh, of a crisis? Do you understand how to help people in a crisis? Do you have the medical skills? Um, what, what, what kind of defenses do you have in your home? And I'm not talking about hanging machine guns out the windows of your house. You understand what I mean. Are you able to take care of your own. This just makes sense. I think that there's a, there's a, a final uh, emphasis that, that, that needs to be made here, and, it's, and then I'll come back to these themes later, but, but these things needed to be said this week in particular. And that is that just like during World War II, when we had to distinguish between, quote, good Germans and bad Germans, between Nazis and non-Nazis, I mean, most everybody in Germany was, uh, was Lutheran, Most everybody in Germany was, of course, German. Uh, You couldn't just demonize all Germans or all Lutherans. You had to make a distinction between, quote unquote, good Germans and bad Germans, between Nazis and non-Nazis. Today, we're going to have to do very much the same. Uh, the, the, The enemy is not all of Islam. I've told you many times in this podcast, and you know if you know anything about me, I walk very closely with the Kurds and try to help them whenever I can in my meager ways. And um, most Kurds are moderate. 
uh, in the in the government offices in Erbil, Iraq, uh, where the government of Iraqi Kurdistan uh, is. Um, there is an Yazidi department. There is a Muslim department. There is a Christian department. Um, there are Jewish Kurds who are honored. Women sit on the Supreme Court. Women are military commanders. Women are um, are entrepreneurs. It's a far more moderate form of Islam. I've shared before that even the senior mullah of Iraqi Kurdistan told me that he was Kurd first, uh, Muslim second, and he would not allow radical Islam to enter into his land. What am I trying to say? We must resist the temptation to believe that all Muslims are evil. Uh, What is happening with ISIS, what is happening with the extreme, angry, radicalized edge of Islam is not uh, Islam uh, worldwide. It's not all of Islam. There are moderate Muslims. There are quote unquote good Muslims. I know that's an insulting term, but it's the best way for me to make the point starkly. And we will have to learn to make a distinction. That doesn't mean we have to be weak. It doesn't mean we can't act and act decisively. And I think our government has active, acted horribly indecisively in recent years. It's time for us to stop dealing with, the, with ISIS as though they're the JV and begin to act as though they're a serious enemy on a global scale. But we also are going to have to prepare ourselves to recognize uh, that there are many Muslims who are as horrified by these matters as we are, who despise ISIS as much as we do. And for them, uh, their Islam is not an excuse for violence. It is simply the way they have chosen to approach their understanding of God. I don't share it. I say that openly. I am a Christian. My Muslim friends, my Kurdish friends know that I'm a Christian and not a Muslim. Uh, I'm not hiding that in any way. However, that does not mean that we should demonize all Muslims. So we have a great challenge before us as a people, as a culture, um, and as our various faiths. We are going to have to recognize that we have stepped into, as the Pope has said, and I agree, into a phase that we must call World War III. We're going to have to fight. We're going to have to fight a new kind of enemy, an enemy that can arise in a very short order in the middle of a high school, in the middle of a college, um, at a factory, on a street, in a movie theater. It's simply that kind of world now. We need to be prepared. We need to be educated. We need to train. I'm not going to hesitate to say, because you know my emphasis on men, that men need to band together and begin to provide the kind of leadership, defense, and wisdom Uh, obviously along with women, but in the unique way that men are called to do, um, and families need to band together. All of this is going to be of a challenge. And we're also going to have to recognize that there are many different kinds of Muslims in the world, that not all Muslims are enemies. This is not a time for fear. This is a time for us to realize, uh, that we have a great challenge before us. I don't mean to get too sentimental by simply saying, um, that as with, uh, the words of Churchill during world war two, this can be our finest hour. This can be a great moment where we deal with these things decisively, where we come together as a culture, where we reach to our heritage and, uh, where we stand, uh, strongly against this evil, uh, that is beginning to arise around the world. We are now in world war three. Let's act like it. Let's pray like it. Let's deal with each other accordingly. Let's strengthen our moorings as a culture, strengthens the, strengthen the moorings of our faiths, and let's elect leaders who recognize us and lead us accordingly. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker, and a frequent faith and culture commentator on CNN, Fox, and The Huffington Post. His groundbreaking books on faith and society include The Faith of George W. Bush, The Search for God in Guinness, 
Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and The Miracle of the Kurds. You can learn more about Stephen at stephenmansfield.tv and greatman.us and connect with him on Facebook and on Twitter under the name Mansfield Writes. The Stephen Mansfield Podcast is produced by Isaac Darnell, who also wrote, performed, and produced the Rockin' Podcast theme song. Be sure to rate the Stephen Mansfield Podcast in the iTunes Store. This is a Chartwell Literary Group production.